Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Desire the unadulterated milk of the word like a newborn baby, that you may grow thereby. His divine power has given to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them by truth. Your word is truth. As we prepare to study God's word this morning, let's go to his throne of grace and ask his guidance and direction. Our Father, we're so thankful for your word as it is a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path. Your word teaches us how to think and what to think. The what to think sometimes is much easier than the how to think. But a right thing done in a wrong way is wrong, and we know that we have to think right, and we have to think with right thoughts. The content and the methodology are both important. Father, as we study today, this passage that we're looking at, the concepts laid out here have to do with our, the foundation of why we live the Christian life. Why, why and how we are supposed to live for you and what our motivation is to be as new creatures in Christ. Now, as we study through these passages, help us to understand them, to see how uh, your word, the verses, passages in various epistles uh, interlock to give us a tremendous understanding of this new life that we have in Christ and the uniqueness and the privilege of our position in Christ as members of this new body, this new entity, this new man. And we pray that that will become even more clear to us as we study today. In Christ's name, amen. All right, let's open our Bibles this morning to Ephesians chapter 4. And while you're going there... Go to Colossians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Go to Colossians 3 and stick your finger in there. Uh, we'll be going there uh, shortly. I was thinking about this, this this morning because I've talked to several people since last week. Last week we hit some new concept, challenged some of the understanding that some of us have had of terminology in this passage and that always seems to rattle a few cages or people just try to get their mental fingers around it. And it caused me to reflect back on a series of lectures I attended in the early 80s. I was pastoring down in Lamarck at the time, and one of the creationist societies in Houston had an event that was held at Cullen Auditorium at the University of Houston. I don't think it could happen today. This The speaker was a... British evangelical who was incredibly brilliant. His name was Dr. A.E. Wilder Smith. He's written five or six different books, and he held three different PhDs in different fields of science, mostly related to biology and the medical field. I mean, that's, it's an amazing accomplishment for somebody to achieve a Ph.D., but to have three Ph.D.s is, is incredible. Now, I could not understand a lot of the science. I don't have much of a science background, but I could follow his arguments, and I could understand what he was saying and what he was talking about, um, and I bought his book so that I could go read the details later, which I've done several times, and it was the kind of material that, that you knew he was really demonstrating the absolute impossibility of Darwinian evolution. Absolutely. There was no doubt in my mind. He had it nailed, and the science was solid. And the science behind Darwinism is not. By the way, have you heard the latest thing that came out of the Webb Telescope? The evidence is that the Big Bang never happened. Oh, really? 
I never would have guessed. You know, fake science is on the part of those who talk about, accuse others of fake science. So anyway, as I listened to him, I, I was just reflecting a little bit on, on the learning process. That, that when we're learning, the whole concept behind learning is there's something we don't know and don't understand, and now we have to learn it. We have to be able to comprehend it and understand it. And, it, and it's a process. And studying the Word of God is that process, and it's a process for all of us. And it's a process historically, as all of you know, I teach church history and history of doctrine. And there is a progression in history in our understanding of the Word. There are many things you and I believe and take for granted that would not were not clear or taken for granted 200 years ago or 400 years ago, not to mention 1,800 years ago. But we grasp these things, and there are some things that come along that, that are thought to be right, and then as there's more and more study, there's a recognition that, that well, that wasn't exactly exactly correct. And that was one of the things I was pointing out in terms of grammar. Uh, I'm not going to get into the technicalities, but I know that with the, with the presence of computers, s- students have been able to analyze things that were never possible before because the human mind just doesn't have that kind of capacity. And for example, you can look at a simple sentence and you can look up different words in the sentence, but with computers you could say, okay, I want to look at every verse in the Bible where you have a present middle voice imperative and it's followed by an aorist participle. doesn't matter what the words are. You're just looking at the grammatical structure. And in a millisecond, you have every one of those verses. And you can set up different kinds of things. That was an unusual one. There might be two or three of those if there are. But um, that's the kind of situation that came up here. And so it, it's caused people to be able to reevaluate this. And there, there have been a half a dozen principles that were laid down by late 19th century grammarians, all British, and, and these guys were brilliant. I mean, they must have memorized the New Testament in Greek to be able to do what they did and to write what they did because they didn't have computers. They just had their own, their own memories, and they worked through those things. It's just phenomenal what they achieved and the observations that they made. But some of these things needed to be tweaked. And like I said, I've run into about four or five tried and true principles that I heard were were absolutes 30 or 40 years ago that have been shown to be not quite right, not as absolute perhaps as we thought. So these things don't change our theology. They're not causing any changes in doctrine. It's not like you know, the, the resurrection didn't occur or Christ didn't die for our sins or something like that. It just tweaks a verse here or there so that you realize, oh, these things can get into conformity a little better. And that's basically what I'm saying. So uh, that changed. But the, the question and the title today is, what is the old man? So we go back to our passage in Ephesians chapter 4. Uh, that we are looking at, and the problem is a problem of behavior, a problem of behavior that Paul is having to address with this congregation in Ephesus. And so he writes, but don't live, the basic command for this section was back in, um, uh, back in verse 17, where he says uh, that you're no longer to walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk. Well, what that means is that, that he's primarily addressing Gentiles, right? He's primarily addressing Gentiles who are no longer just Gentiles. They are, they are believers, and he says you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the uh, vanity, emptiness, or purposelessness of their thinking. And then he gave descriptions of what characterized the thinking and the lifestyle of 
these Gentile unbelievers. And then in verse 20, he makes this contrast, but you have not learned Christ in such a way. The way in which you learned about Christ and learned who Christ is and what he taught was not done in such a way. And in the context, what we're reminded of is that Christ gave his body certain gifted people to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. And evangelists and pastor teachers were to teach the word and to teach the truth. And so that's what he's reminding them of. And then he gives the content of what they heard, verse 21. Indeed, you have heard him and have been taught by him what they've heard and what they've been taught. And the truth is absolute truth in Jesus And then you have this phrase that you put off uh, concerning your former conduct, the old man, which grows corrupt according to deceitful lusts, and be renewed, that's your positive present tense command, uh, our infinitive there, be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new, new man, which was created according to God in true righteousness. So that the main thing that I'm focusing on right now is the putting off, and the putting on. Because what this looks like, the way it's translated, is it has a command so that we read that as if it's saying that you should put off the old man and that you should put on the new man. And so we have to understand, is this really a command? And the reason I say that is because For years, what I struggled with was in the parallel passage, which is where we're going to spend most of our time today, in Colossians chapter 3, it has, it's talking about the same thing, and it says, um, you have put off the old man, and then it says, you have put on the new man. So, which is it? Is it a command to put off the old man and to put on the new man, or is this a declarative sentence, an indicative mood reality, you've already put off the old man and you've already put on the new man. So it appears to be a contradiction. And for for years, as I pointed out last time, I'd go through all the grammars and all the grammars are saying one thing and I'm looking at this and you know, that just makes it a contradiction. There's something that really bothers me here. And I couldn't couldn't figure it out and so I've always wrestled with it. So couple of things I want you to remind you of in terms of the context. And the first thing is that in Ephesians, we've seen that the major emphasis is on this corporate reality, what we have together in Christ. And we see this in Ephesians 2, 14 through 16. What we have together in Christ means that there should be a unity in the body. And that's based on what is said in in the middle of verse 15, but I'm going to read all three verses for you. For he himself is our peace. That's referring to Christ. Christ himself is our peace. Who's the our? The our is Jewish believers and Gentile believers. He's our peace who has made both. Who's the both? Both implies two things. If you say, I have... Three eggs, both of them are large. What's the problem? Both refers to two. Okay, so the both here says he has made both one. Jewish believers and Gentile believers. He has made both of them one, and he broke down the wall of separation, which is defined as the enmity of the law of commandments at the beginning of verse 15. And why did he do that? That's the last half of verse 15. So as to create in himself. Who does the creating? Christ. Christ created in himself one new man from the two. Now, as I said last week, that defines for us what the new man is. The new man is this new entity that Christ created in himself. Now, you've got to have to hold on to that because that's so important. It's not an individual thing. It applies to every individual that trusts in Christ, but it is a corporate thing. What happens is he created a new team. 
The team in the Old Testament was Israel, and they wore their blue and white jerseys. And now we have a team in the New Testament, the church, and the church has royal purple jerseys so that when a Jewish unbeliever and a Gentile unbeliever in this church age trust in Christ, they are united together. They don't go on the old Israel team wearing the blue and white jerseys. They are now in the body of Christ wearing purple jerseys that isn't distinguishing between the Jewish background believer and the Gentile background believer, okay? So we are one new man. We're a new team is what this is talking about. It's a corporate a corporate concept. And so that's that reconciliation between Jew and Gentile, that's horizontal. And in Ephesians 2.16, then those two that are now one are reconciled to God and in one body. So it's just in these three verses, we have one new man and one new body, both corporate concepts. Now, this was picked up and foreshadowed just a few verses earlier in Ephesians 2.10. And in Ephesians 2.10, Paul says, for we are his workmanship. Now, if you look back at the beginning of chapter 2, he starts off by saying, and you who were dead in your trespasses and sins. Who's the you? That is you Gentile believers. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of this world. And then in verse 3 he says, among whom also we all once continued our, conducted ourselves. Who's the we there? We Jewish believers. You is Gentiles, now it's we. And then he, uh, then he says, uh, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, that's Jewish and Gentile unbelievers, he made us alive together with Christ. Who's the us? Now we have a second, uh, I mean, a first-person plural that's Jewish believers and Gentile believers, and now they're joined together in this one plural pronoun. He made us Jewish believers, Gentile believers, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you, you Gentiles, were saved and raised us up together, made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ. And then in verse 8, he'll say, for by grace, you have been saved through faith. That is, you Gentile unbelievers were saved by grace through faith and that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not of less, not of works, lest any man should boast, for we... Now, who's the we? The we is now this, this unity, that, this thing that's taken place. We, Jewish background believers and Gentile back, background believers, that's a corporate concept. We are his masterpiece. It's translated in most versions, we are his workmanship. But workmanship is an archaic word, and it doesn't convey what I want this passage to convey. We are his master masterpiece. And master, see, there can be a plural to this noun, masterpieces. So that's how most people read it. We are his masterpieces. You know, Bill's a Christian, he's, he's one masterpiece. John's a Christian, he's another master masterpiece. Betty's a Christian, she's another masterpiece. That's not what it's saying. It's not saying we are his masterpieces. It says, we, Jew and Gentile, body of Christ, together as one, are his masterpiece. The team is his masterpiece. Okay? Now, that's really important and something that has not been brought out enough. We are his masterpiece created in Christ Jesus. Notice that this word create, the masterpiece is created where? In Christ is anybody in Christ from Adam all the way through the Old Testament, all the way up through John the Baptist, or any of them in Christ? No, they are not. They were baptized into Moses. No, that's the Old Testament. There's no body of Christ. Now there's something different. This masterpiece, this body of Christ, this new man is in Christ, and that's the new team. And there's... Uh, 
some requirements on this team, not to get on the team, but that there's a, there's a code of conduct for the team. And the code of conduct is that part of you came out of a Jewish background, part of you came out of a Gentile background. Now you all have to learn to play nice together. And you haven't been playing nice together. And that's why there's an emphasis on unity. So that when we get down into the next section, the section that comes after the current one, uh, we're going to see this emphasis on individual behavior, that there's some bad behavior going on, and Paul has to correct them. And he says, let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice, and be kind to one another, tender-hearted." Forgiving one another graciously. The word there is charismai, which is be, being gracious to one another. Uh, for, graciously forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave, graciously forgave you. But see, that stands in contrast to what we saw at the beginning of the chapter. At the beginning of the chapter, Paul says, Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, strongly urge you to conduct your life, to walk worthy, to conduct your life in a manner worthy of the exalted position to which you were summoned. What's the exalted position? You're on the best team. You're royalty. You're in the body of Christ. So you need to live according to the protocols of the body of Christ and that's characterized by humility and gentleness, long-suffering, and putting up with one another in love, and being diligent to maintain the unity between Jew and Gentile. The sad thing is, is by the time you get to the end of the second century in church history, by the time you get to between 150 and 200, there starts to be more and more conflicts between Jewish believers and Gentile believers so that by 200, the Gentile believers have basically kicked the Jewish believers out of the church, which had horrible consequences. And that's part of the root of the beginning of Christian anti-Semitism. And it's just after that, right around 200, uh, 230, in that age where you have one of the early church fathers named Origen, and Origen is the one who basically comes up, adopts from the Greek culture an, an um, allegorical interpretation. And now that sets the stage for Israel not being literal Israel and the church not being literal church so that you can call the Israel in the Old Testament the church of the Old Testament and uh church in the New Testament, the Israel of God, and all of a sudden you mess everything up and you uh, lay the groundwork for what develops into Christian anti-Semitism. And this is what happened. Paul's trying to head this off at the pass, as it were, giving the positive commands here and then the negative ones later on, which relates to their behavior. As far as God is concerned, there's three groups of people on the earth. You don't have all of these races. There's the human race. You have Jews who are distinctive. They are called out as a distinctive people of God under the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. They reject the Messiah, though, so God basically puts the pause button on his plans for Israel, and he's going to bring in a new people. So up until... Pentecost in A.D. 33, you have Jews and Gentiles, but a new entity comes into creation on the day of Pentecost, and that's the church. It's the new man, the new body, the new building, the new temple, according to Paul there in Ephesians uh, chapter 2. So this new entity has uh, a new protocol, new protocols of behavior, and we see that A chapter earlier, two chapters earlier, Paul defines new man so that when he comes down to verse 23 or 24, rather, and he says that you put, you put on the new man and interpreting like it's an imperative is completely wrong. And you have to understand that if it's an an indicative mood is, is the mood of reality in Greek. That's the same in English. You were taught this, what, three sentence, three kinds of sentences. There's a declarative sentence, 
There's an interrogative sentence, that's a question, and there's an exclamatory sentence, that's an exclamation. So this is a declarative sentence. So it's just stating a fact. You have put on, because it's a past tense infinitive, you have put on. Now, even though all that's kind of kind of fuzzy for some people, you have the same verb for putting off as a participle in verse 25 where it says, therefore, it's horribly translated, putting away lying. It's you have put off the falsehood. It's a participle there. It's an infinitive. Now, here's a weird thing, okay? I know grammar gets a little hard for some people, but you can make the statement, to win is everything. When you have a verb preceded by the letters T-O, to, that's an infinitive. To win is an infinitive. To win is everything. To win functions as a noun in that short sentence. To win is everything. Can you say it another way? Winning is everything. The I-N-G word, that's a participle. It means the same thing. So whether you use an infinitive or use a participle, they're functioning the same way grammatically in the sentence. Now, that's important to understand because when you look at verse 25 and it says, therefore, you have put off lying. It's not lying. It's the falsehood. Okay, you have put it off. And when it translates it the way it's translated, it's very, very confusing. But when Paul wrote the Colossians, he's saying the same thing in Colossians 3, 8 through 10, 8 through 11, that he says here in verses 21 through 24. But there he used participles instead of infinitives. And that's really important because it makes it clearer grammatically. So that you have to, if you can understand Colossians 3, 8 through 11, that clarifies exactly what he's saying here and tells you that what he's saying here is not imperative. It's not you put on this or put off that. It's you have put it off. You have put it on. It's a reality. It happened at the instant we were saved. And I want to show that to you. So we go to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, 8 through 11. And notice verse 8. But now you yourselves are to put off, this is the same verb for putting off that we find twice in Ephesians uh, 4. You are to put off these things. Anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Now notice what you put off are specific sins. Okay? You're not putting off specific sins in uh, Ephesians 2, 23 to 25. You're putting off the old man. Now, some people think that, well, the old man is a sin nature. And the problem is they just didn't understand what was going on in Ephesians 4. So what happens with all of us is if we don't understand something, to make it clear, we take something we think we understand and we impose that on that passage so now it makes sense. And so the way people would read that um, is they would read that, that you are to put off the old man, which simply means that we're to, we're to not sin. But see, because they know there's a struggle that we have in the Christian life, and that's in Galatians chapter 5. But I want you to notice, I'll read it to you. I don't have it on a slide. I want to read this to you. Paul says in Galatians 5.16, Walk by means of the Spirit, and you will not bring to completion the lust of the flesh. Verse 17, for the, lust, uh, for the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit lusts against the flesh, and these are contrary to one another. Who are the two entities there? The Holy Spirit and the sin nature. And there's a war going on inside every one of us. But that's not what Paul's talking about. He uses totally different language. He uses new man and old man, and they're not the same. The old man is not the flesh, and the new man is not the Holy Spirit. New man is not a new nature. Nature is phusis, not anthropos. It's not the same thing. But there was this, I got to make this passage work because I sense a conflict, and so I'm going to take 
Galatians 5 and impose it on Ephesians 4, and that doesn't work. We got to stick with what, how the text defines itself. So you have things that we are to put off, specific sins. Then Paul says another one at the beginning of verse 9, do not lie to one another. Totally different language than what we have in, in Ephesians uh, 4 where it says you have put off the lie. Here it is saying don't lie to one another. It's a specific command related to a specific sin. And then what does it say? It says, here, it's, here I have the word for, uh, that's to put off is apotithemi. It says, do not lie, which is a command, a prohibition. Don't lie to one another. And then we have apodecomai, apekduomai. Now, this is one word. It's a participle. It's an aorist participle. Now, you don't get all conf- spacey glazed over looks on your face when I mention this. I'm going to teach you something about Greek grammar. And somebody's going to say, oh, you're getting too technical. I learned that when I was a teenager in Bible class when I was 15 or 16 years old. And if I could learn it when I was 15 or 16 years old, you can at least come to grasp it a little bit now. It's pretty simple. How do participles and verbs relate to each other? Well, a lot of participles are adverbs. That means they're modifying a verb. So to get the meaning of the participle, you have to understand something about the verb. So when you have a present tense verb and it's followed with a present tense participle, the action of the participle is contemporaneous or at the same time as the action of the verb. Okay? Now, if you have a present tense participle and a past tense, I mean a present tense verb, and a past tense participle, the action of the participle comes before the action of the verb. You know, I remember, I learned, I learned the four different conditional clauses and I learned the basic way to understand participles and verbs when I was about 15 or 16 years old. That did me great. Uh, it, it was great for me when I got to seminary and studied Greek. I already knew that much. Okay, so you look at this. You have the main verb here is do not lie. It is a present tense command. And it's modified by you have put off, which is an aorist tense participle. So it's not a present tense verb with a present tense participle. That would indicate at the same time. It's a present tense verb with a past tense participle. Aorist tense is one of the two past tenses in Greek. It's a past tense, or three past tenses actually. One of the past tense participle. The action of the participle comes before the action of the verb. So do not lie now, present tense, bec- and it's you have already put off. The putting off was before the present tense command. You know, you don't have past tense commands. You can only command somebody to do something now or to do something in the future. You can't command somebody to do something yesterday. It's too late. Unless you're a postmodern. So the present tense command is because it's a causal participle. You're not to live a certain way now because you've already put off the old man. Wow. I thought the old man was a sin nature. No, we'll get there. So the past tense participle precedes the action of the main verb. So it says, don't lie to one another since you have already put off the old man. And then in verse 10 it says, and have already. See, it's another past tense participle. So it's got to be translated the same. You've already put off the old man and you've already put on the new man who is what? Who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. Okay, who are the hymns? Not hymn number three. H-I-M. You have three, what, two here. 
two in this passage. Put on the new man who, the who is a relative pronoun. Who, to what does the who refer? It refers to the new man. The new man is being renewed in knowledge according to the image of him. Now, it's nice of them to capitalize this H because that's the clue. That refers to Christ. We're being renewed in the knowledge according to the image of Christ who created him, lowercase. Who does this him refer to? It refers to the new man. Who created the new man? Christ. What did Ephesians 2.15 say? He created in himself one new man. Christ created, he, Paul, Paul wrote Colossians about the same time he wrote Ephesians. Colossae is in western Turkey, so is Ephesus. They're close to each other, and they're, they're very similar. And a lot of times you, it's helpful to use one of them to explain a little more about what the other one is saying. So we have already put on the new man who is being who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created the new man. Christ created the new man. Now, some people think, well, that each of us has created a new man. They take it individually. Now, I've been saying it's corporate. You know why it can't be individual? We'll see this in the next verse. Colossians 3.11 says, created him. Where? Now, to what does the where refer? It refers to the new man. It refers to the him to the new man. In the new man where there is neither Greek nor Jew. Now, does that make sense if the new man is something individual, if that's referring to that which has been regenerated inside of you, if that's the new man, why would he say where there is neither Jew nor Greek, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free? That doesn't refer to the individual regenerated nature. What does it describe? It describes the body of Christ. How do we know that? We know that from passages like Galatians 3, 27 to 28, where Paul says, For as many of you, that is, all of you who are believers, who were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Well, there's that interesting word put on again. Now let's connect the dots. Putting on the new man was something that was done in the past. You have put on the new man. Here you put on Christ. Could could Christ, something about Christ, be the new man? What do we put on? We put on a new position in Christ, don't we? Okay. So in this Christ, he says, there is, that, that this is describing what is in Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither male or, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male nor female, for you are all one, where? In Christ. That comes back to that unity again. It's the same thing that Paul is saying. Paul's consistent. He doesn't contradict himself. He's not saying it one way in one place. Oh, you know, I got a better idea. I'm going to say it a little better over here. Okay, the Holy Spirit uses these different. He uses his personality. So it's going to be some different phrases, but they'll mean the same thing, which is what I'm pointing out. So this is the baptism by the Holy Spirit. Now, we've studied that a lot, and I'm not going to digress into a whole study on that, but remember when Jesus appeared to John the Baptist, or before Jesus appeared to John the Baptist, John was announcing his coming. And he said, there's one coming after me, and I'm not worthy to uh, tie the latch on his sandals. But I baptize you by means of water, but he, who's the he? The Messiah. He will baptize, that's future tense, he will baptize you by means of the Spirit and by means of fire. So in all the Gospels, you have this reference to Christ. When the Messiah comes, he will baptize you. Okay? He will baptize you by means of the Spirit. 
The Spirit is, is compared to, John said, I baptize you in hudity by means of water. He will baptize you by means of the Spirit. He perform, who performs the baptism? Jesus performs the baptism. He uses the Holy Spirit as his instrument to bring about that cleansing and placing us where? What, what are we baptized into? The body of Christ. We're identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. Now, where did I get that idea? That's Romans 6. So let's go to Romans 6. Romans 6, verses 3 and 4. This is very important because we have an old man reference in verse 6, so we have to get the context. In verse 3 he says, Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. Now, the concept of baptism means identification with something. As many of us as were identified with Christ were identified or baptized into his death. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. See, the the, the imagery of physical baptism, which we're having next Saturday, the imagery is important. The imagery of going into the water and coming out is a picture of the recognition of the what? That we have died to the old man. And when we come out, we're in the new man. That happens spiritually at the instant of salvation. We're baptized into Christ. So that what's our position? We're in Christ. What was our position before we were in Christ? We were in Adam. That's being in Adam is roughly equivalent to the old man. The old man refers to the human race. And before, before the church, there were just Jew and Gentile. There was all of humanity. And it started when God created Adam in perfection. But then what happened? He was corrupted. That's what we see in, in Ephesians chapter 4 is that the old man, which is being progressive, which is being corrupted, okay, according to the deceitful lust of the sin nature. It's in process. It's still being corrupted. That is, those who are outside of Christ, who are without hope and without eternal life. They are still being corrupted. Adam was perfect. He was first corrupted in Genesis chapter 3. But guess what? If you go to Genesis 6, I think it's 11 and 13. If you go to Genesis 6, 11 and 13, God's indictment on the, on the flood generation was that the human race was corrupted. It all ties together. The old man is everybody in Adam. The old man is being corrupted today. So that the picture of baptism is positional truth, our new position in Christ. Now, I'm not going to go to, go to uh, Romans 5, but this is in contrast to what Paul was talking about in Romans 5 when he talks about our position in Adam. Now our position is in Christ, and the purpose is so that we should walk, live our lives in newness of life. And then verse 5 we read, For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. So he's drawing an analogy. We are raised to newness of life so that we can walk in newness of life, and as Jesus has new life, in his resurrection, so we have new life when we have trusted in Christ because we know this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin may be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. Now, a lot of people think that the old man is the sin nature. So let's translate old man as sin nature, and does this make sense? Knowing this, that the sin nature, our sin nature was crucified with him, that our sin nature might be done away with. See, that our sin nature might be done away with is future. 
the old, the sin, if we translate that to sin nature is crucified, that means it's crucified in the past. It doesn't make sense. Not only that, but old man in Ephesians 4, the old man is still being corrupted. And let me tell you, the sin nature has always been as corrupt as it's always going to be. It's just expressions may be more corrupt than others. So this is talking about two different things. Because we know this, that our old man was crucified, that is the crucifixion of our position in Adam. For the purpose that the end game is to do away with our sin nature. And the, the theme of Romans 6 is that the tyranny of the sin nature is broken at the instant of salvation. Before you're saved, there's only one nature that rules you, and that's your sin nature. You can do all kinds of good things like the Pharisees did, but it, it, it's just dead works. You can do morally good things. You can do ethically good things, but they're all just dead works. It's all the product of the sin nature because that's the only nature you have. But what happens when you're regenerated is you're a new, you're, you are a born again believer now that, you, and you have the Holy Spirit. Now there's a war going on inside of you between the Holy Spirit and the, and the sin nature, and you have to choose, am I going to follow the Holy Spirit? Or am I going to follow the sin nature? But that's not the same as old man and new man. Old man is dead. All that we were in Adam is dead. Now we are a new man. A, a new creature in Christ, so that the old corporate position, our position in Adam, was crucified for the purpose that the sinful nature's power in our lives might be neutralized. That's what's going on in Romans Romans 6. So that when we trust in Christ, the old man is dead, we're freed from the tyranny of the sin nature. Now, when we go back to Ephesians 4.22, and while you're turning back to Ephesians 4.22, I'm going to take you to another passage. I'll just reference it quickly. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, Paul writes, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. New creation, new man. We're in Christ. He is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. He says, if anyone is in Christ, in Christ you're in a new creation. You're in the new man. That's the new creation. Darby got it right. I pointed this out last time. He understood the role of the participles in Ephesians 4.22, namely, you're having put off, past tense, according to the former conversation, the former manner of life, the old man which corrupts itself. It's old, old, antiquated English. But he got the participle right. You have put off the old man. And being renewed now, present tense, in the spirit of your mind, and you're having in the past put on the new man. So basically what he's saying is you have put off, already put off concerning your former conduct, the old man, our previous position in Adam, which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lust. That is, the whole human race is growing more and more corrupt generation to generation. You don't believe that? Read the paper in the morning. Colossians, back to Colossians, do not lie to one another since you've already put off the old man with his deeds. That's your motivation. Why should I stop lying and being deceitful and being bitter and angry and unforgiving, all of those things? Why? Because I've already put off the... Uh, put off the old man, and I changed teams. I got rid of that that the jersey I was wearing before. Now I'm wearing a a, a purple robe of royalty, and I need to act like I'm on this team and quit acting like I'm on the previous team because I've already put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. Now, I've already pointed out that what happens is that what happens is that when um, in the next verse it talks about our position in Christ as a result of being baptized into Christ, where there's neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, bond or slave, for we're all one in Christ. So this is, takes us down to the next section in, in Ephesians 
where we're going to see that uh, the focal point is on uh, the renewing of our mind. But before we get there, we have to understand what is going on with this deceitful lust. So it's the sin, it deals with the sin nature. And the solution to the sin nature is being renewed in the spirit of our mind. And again, why is that? It's because you have already put on the new man, which was what? Created according to God in true righteousness and justice. So that new jersey that we put on is righteousness and justice and holiness. That's the new jersey. So if we're going to wear a jersey that says that we are declared righteous, we're supposed to live like that. That's the motivation here. And so you don't have nothing in 17 to 24 is a, is a command because this is giving us the rationale, the basis for what's coming in verse 25. From 425 down to Ephesians 518 where it says, uh, don't be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, uh, dissipation, but be filled by means of the Spirit. There are at least 25 commands and prohibitions. But it's interesting. There's not a command or command before that in this this section. This is laying the foundation, the motivation for why we are to ob- obey these commands and prohibitions because we're now a new entity. We're part of the new entity. And just because it's a corporate concept doesn't mean that we don't have individual responsibilities. If you're married, that's a corporate concept. You're married. If you have kids, you're a corporate concept. You're a family. Does everybody have specific responsibilities? Yeah. And they have things they're supposed to do and things they're not supposed to do. So we have to understand who, what, our, what our new identity is in Christ, and then we have to live in accordance with that. That's what Paul's laying out here. So we'll come back, tie some of these other things together, fit it with other passages, and do that next time with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things, to work through our understanding of these passages, and even though it's a slightly different way of explaining them than we've heard before or that I've given before, uh, it fits perfectly with most of the other things and nearly everything else that, that we've learned about the spiritual life. It's just focusing it in a more precise, correct manner. Help us to understand that as we think through this and as we reflect upon it that we can we can grasp grasp these conclusions and make the application. Father, we're not saved by what we do or how we live or how well we're obedient. We are saved because Christ died for our sins. We pray that that would be clear to anyone who's listening who's never trusted Christ, who is unsure of their eternal life, that salvation is due to faith in Christ. What he did on the cross is what saves us, not what we do. And, Father, we pray that you would just illuminate their minds uh, by the Holy Spirit to understand clearly the gospel, that they might respond in faith. Father, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.